Hey Element, welcome from whenever and wherever you're watching from, whether it's live stream or on demand. We are just so glad that you decided to spend some time with us today, getting to know better what God is calling us to in our lives. I have a really kind of a cool announcement for you, and that is Jonathan Whitaker, who is the lead elder at our Element Colorado Springs Church Plant, is actually back from Kuwait. So if you've been praying for him, if you remember to pray for him, he's back, he's safe and sound, he's with his family again. We're actually going to be going out to see him in the next uh, week or so. So again, keep Element Colorado Springs in your prayers. That'd be awesome. Again, as we keep telling you, in the middle of this message, there's going to be a little slide that pops up. It's going to have a question on it. And while that question's up, you can hit pause and take care of your kids, get a cup of coffee, take care of whatever you need to in those moments, and then come back and hit play and just kind of keep going. If you don't need to pause, we'll just keep playing right on through that and, and you'll be okay. If you have a smart device, you can download this app. It is called Uversion. Click on more and then events in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smart device and you will get sermon notes, questions, verses, announcements, really everything that goes with the message this morning. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. If you are so inclined, you can stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And this is Acts 28, verse 15. And it says, And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would teach us today to be those who learn how to encourage one another, that by the way we speak and remember who you are and talk about that with one another, it would bring great courage to us by how we live out our lives in this world, bringing you glory as you teach us to live in the joy that you so graciously give to us. Amen. All right, so we are in week 40 of Acts Part 2, the second part of walking through the book of Acts. You can open to Acts 28 if you would like, although I will remind you again about that in just a little bit. Now today what you're going to see is a community of people that come around the Apostle, the Apostle Paul to encourage him because he needs it, which in reality, especially where we are, we are all a people who need that. Uh, Paul is someone who has been in jail for years now, but before that, he's People tried to kill him on multiple occasions. Uh, his message of Jesus has been rejected probably in more places than you and I have ever been on vacation. And I think it starts to take a toll on him. All the way back in Acts 20 and 21, Paul is getting ready to go into the city of Jerusalem. And before he does, a group of people gather around him and they encourage him before he goes in there. Now, Paul thinks he's going to die in Jerusalem. But instead, what happens is he gets arrested and thrown in jail. And he'll be in jail for years. By the time that we come to where we are today in Acts 28, Paul has been in jail upwards of about three and a half years. While he was in jail, he's been beaten by mobs, interrogated, shipwrecked, attacked by snakes, and today he's going to finally arrive in Rome, but it's the next part of his journey. He's going to remain in jail while he's in Rome, and I think he needs that encouragement. And so God comes and brings people around Paul to encourage him. And I don't know if you understand how important encouragement is to us as a people especially followers of Christ. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. 
Now, sometimes I know there's people in your life, and you feel like they're, they're always manipulating you, trying to get you to say nice things about them. To be honest, we all need encouragement. And no matter how well-adjusted we are, we need it. So that's where we're going to kind of camp today. We're going to talk about these ideas of, of encouraging one another. Now, we have talked through the book of Acts and other books numerous times about the hardships that come into our lives and how God grows us in the midst of those things to know Him and trust Him better. And during those times, we need people to come alongside of us. Paul will speak about this through many books in the New Testament. In Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, Paul will talk about these things called burdens and loads. He will say, Galatians 6, 1, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Then in verse 5 he says, For each will have to bear his own load. Now, you see in the Greek that loads and burdens are two different things. Loads are things sometimes God places upon us, and they have a little bit of weight to them, but it's supposed to teach us to be a humble people who trust Him, and it builds humility and faith. But sometimes things are very heavy, and they will crush us, and we need people around us to help us to carry those things. Now, honestly, there are loads that God places upon us, and there are loads that we place upon ourselves through sin in our life. Sometimes we can buck up and carry that and get out of it, but many times sin becomes very heavy. And we need one another to come around us to help to get out from under that, to step away. Some things, there are things in our life where we bear those in a way that honors God, and sometimes things crush us. It is why being in a community with other people is so important in the scriptures, and it's something that Element pushes as a church. Now, there's a good reason why I don't think that God just shows up and writes his name in the sky, other than the fact that we probably couldn't read it. (laughs) God's goal for the human race is more than just getting people to admit that he exists. It's becoming the kind of people who can go through whatever comes our way and still bring Him glory and still bring joy to one another in how we love and encourage one another. It's kind of like this. Imagine you're driving down the street in your car and you look over and there's a police officer on the side of the road. What do you do? You look at your speed, you tap your brakes, you look at your phone to make sure you weren't looking at your phone, but you just looked at your phone and you're like, oh my goodness, I looked at my phone, is he going to see me? In other words, you suddenly find your intention to obey the law going way up from the speed limit to whatever else it is. But it's not because your heart has really changed. You've not suddenly found a deep inner conviction where all your driving skills inside your body wants to follow the law. That's not how it goes. You're not loving the existence of a speed limit. What starts to happen is our own preoccupation with ourself and our darkness prevent us from seeing things as they really are. We get scared and then we start to take and project all of that onto the police officer themselves. We will start to project on the officer our fears and our own desires and our selfishness and our darkness and all those things start to filter the way we see that human being. Like we think they're just out there to get us. Now take all of that and magnify that like a hundred or a million times over because that also gets in our way of seeing God as He truly is in the midst of our hardships. We always wonder what He's doing. We think He's not present or He doesn't care about what we're going through. In Exodus 33 verse 20, it says, No one can see God's face. 
Now, that can mean a few different things, but one of them, I think, is that we cannot see God as He really is because of all of the stuff in our lives that come up. We're just not capable of seeing who He really is. We tend to project our own fallenness onto God and cease to trust Him. And this is one of the reasons why we need one another, because we can come alongside one another and reset one another to see God hopefully more as who He is. And what I mean when I say that God is more interested and then getting us just to admit that He exists, there's lots of people out there who say they believe in God. But a lot of people who say they believe in God, they are moral and spiritual failures. As a matter of fact, in the book of James, chapter 2, verse 19, in the NIV it says, You believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. I mean, think about that. The demons believe that God exists. Do the demons believe the same thing that Jesus believes about the Father, that the Father is good and loving and and full of grace? Not at all. And I would say many times it is easier for us to think about the Father the way that demons do than the way Jesus actually does, especially if we don't have anyone around us to continue to point us back to trusting God in the midst of our hardships. Blaise Pascal once said, there's enough light for those who want to see and enough darkness for those of a different persuasion. Now, I think part of the problem really is just the culture we grow up in. We are constantly taught in America, American individualism. Uh, Your faith is between you and God. You're on a journey with God. It's just you and Him. Don't ever worry about anyone else. And in one sense, that's actually true. You shouldn't worry about what everybody else thinks. You don't want to live your spiritual life with Jesus like a politician, like, which way is the wind blowing? Oh, that's what I'll believe today. But we also have to understand that the Scripture never speaks of our faith in God as being just solitary. How the Scripture sees things is usually different than how we tend to see things, especially in regard to belief and grace and sin. When we think about sin, it's usually just between me and God, and the consequences are just between me and God. That's individualism, American individualism. We say things like, how you live your life is up to you. But do you know the Bible has no such perspective like that? It doesn't. It sees sin as generational. It sees sin as affecting the community around us, that what we do goes beyond us. And I think this is why when you read the Old Testament, you see the story of failure after failure after failure. And there are a lot of people who want to clean that up and say, oh, it wasn't a real real failure. It was more like this. But no, I think those failures are there to teach us that we cannot do it on our own and that our lives go out beyond us and that we need one another. There are consequences to our choices that go beyond our little lives. The decisions we make today will affect those around us and those that come after us. And so the church is meant to be a people, not an individual living for God, but a people living for God together. When we, when we make a decision or you make a decision, do you ever ask how it's going to affect those that come after you? When you, when you make that kind of decision, do you ask those questions? When you see someone struggling, do you say, hey, I wonder if I could go and help that person and come alongside of them and encourage them? See, our life is just not a zero-sum game. It extends out beyond us, even though our culture hates to acknowledge that, but it's true. And the cultural mindset of individualism has infected the church where we tend to only think about ourselves. We will say things like, I didn't like that sermon, or I didn't like the music, my tastes weren't satisfied. But how often do we sit back and think, maybe it's not about me. Maybe it's about those around me that God wants to use these things to hear who He is. It's about those who then come after me. 
Now, it's true that sometimes Christians do get alongside one another and they encourage people to do some heinous, horrible things. Uh, You can always point the finger at certain groups of crazy religious people who've done crazy religious things. An atheist named Steven Weinberg said, good people do good things and bad people do bad things, but to get good people to do bad things, that takes religion. And it's true, lots of horrible things have been done in the name of God. And we never want to minimize it. We don't want to justify it. We want to look at that and see the failures so that we can encourage one another to live for God in godly ways, more in accord with God's call. In 1 Peter 4.17, Peter says, It is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And that is true. So we learn to do that with one another. And really when people say things like, look at all the Christians, what they've done throughout the ages, a good question to ask when people question Christianity that way is, were those horrible atrocities, again, sometimes done in the name of Jesus, the outcome of his teaching or violations of it? Because the one that we follow, Jesus says things like, love your enemies. He says, bless those who persecute you. He says, turn the other cheek. When Jesus is dying on the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Does that sound like people who commit atrocities? Not really. Frederick Buechner says, There is perhaps no better proof of the existence of God than the way year after year he survives the way his professional friends promote him. Uh, Evelyn Waugh, who's a Catholic writer, she was asked, How can you call yourself a Catholic and be so badly behaved, so mean, such a jerk, so spiteful? And she responds, Just imagine me if I wasn't a Catholic. <laughs> it's kind of, kind of funny. The answer to all of these things and all these questions really is God's presence in His people and His people being present with one another. Calling one another back to who God calls us to be in encouragement. And I think if we were closer to one another, living in gospel-centered community as God calls us to, many of our problems of pain or even the terrible things we say and do would actually begin to be lessened. Think about this. You know, I think we talked about uh, this back in our Reason for God series. In most religions, evil and suffering are not really a problem. I know people, when they come at Christianity, they say, see, why would God do this? But really, in any other religion, it's not an issue. In Hinduism, suffering is a result of bad karma left over from your previous life. So you've got to work it off. There's, there's every reason in the world for there to be pain and stuff in Hinduism. Buddhism teaches that all life is suffering and the self does not exist and teaches you that once you understand that, there's no reason to try and get away from pain because you have no self. Uh, Not having a self also comes in handy if the IRS wants to audit you, too. I don't have a self. C.S. Lewis said all of our modern objections to God are based upon the notions of what's fair and justice in our individual ways. when We focus solely on ourselves. Like, we think no good person, quote-unquote, ought to suffer. And we define what is good, and we decide what is suffering. We think that no good person should have hardship. And again, we decide what is good, and we decide what is then hardship. And rather than coming together to see what God is doing to us in the midst of hardship, if we sit alone without others around us, we will come to a place of victimhood. We will start to blame God and blame one another and blame all these things around us. When we come alongside one another and encourage one another, it can lead us to places of lament where we actually cry out to God, God, why? What is happening? What is going on here? We can do that together. But the part of doing it together is that when we see pain around us, God wants us also to do something about it. 
Some people say, well, shouldn't God just fix it? And I would say he has. God has sent his people into the world to be his hands and feet. This is why the writers of Scripture don't spend their time trying to explain evil. They grieved over it corporately. They got angry about it together. And then as a church, they started to do something about it. When the early church was founded, we read this in Acts 2, 44 and 45. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So how did they do it? Well, they did it together. That's how they did it. And so right here, we're going to put a slide up. And here's my question for you. When was the last time someone close to you needed encouragement because of something in their life? And you came alongside them and walked with them through something, through some pain. Or even vice versa. Maybe when you were going through something, when is the time a friend came alongside you and encouraged you by walking through pain with you? And then really get to the end of that is, how did that make you feel, that encouragement? What did it do for you? So moving on, this is what happens, I think, to Paul when he is encouraged through a lot of disasters in his life. All the places where it seemed like the next moment could be his last. So open to Acts chapter 28 if you haven't yet. Uh, you got to understand, as Paul goes through all of these things, Paul was almost never alone. All the missionary journeys, he had people with him. Even on the shipwreck, Luke was with him during the voyage. And I don't think Paul could have done it alone. I think that Paul needed these people around him, and we can't do things alone. The importance of communities coming together is so important. As we looked at how we can serve one another, how we can give to one another, not just take from one another. Because when we give to one another, we spur one another on to bring about the forward proclamation of the good news of God's rescue of us and God's work in the world. John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. When Jesus says have love for one another, that's not gushy feelings or something like that. This is living with one another. The word love there is the word agape, and it's unconditional, self-sacrificial love for one another. If this love is a love that doesn't need approval to tell all of your crazy friends that what they're doing is okay so they like you. It's a love that speaks truth and reconciliation into relationships even when it is hard. So let's get to Paul today and show you what kind of happens to him right before he goes into Rome and the encouragement that he receives. So this is Acts 28, starting in verse 11, which is where we left off last week. It says, so after three months, so they spent three months on the island of Malta during the winter, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. So if you were here a few weeks ago, you saw that they got on a ship of Alexandria that was going to Rome for drop off all of their grain that they got from Egypt. This is the same exact type of ship, although this captain was smarter. He said, oh, look, it's winter. We're going to stop. We're not going to try and sail across this crazy sea. So he stops there for the winter. Now, when it says the twin gods is a figurehead, if you know Greek mythology, you studied it at all, this would be referring to these two brothers named Castor and Pollux. Uh, in mythology, Zeus had two sons by this woman named Leda, and they were Castor and Pollux. They become the guardian deities of sailors and navigators. And at this point, again, everyone is superstitious in this world because these are new sailors, not the ones that have gone through all the trials with Paul and the prisoners and, and the sailors and the soldiers. These, these are new people, so they haven't seen what God has been doing. And it's kind of like Luke is telling you this. And it's interesting that he says this because it's kind of like ironic. It is that the sons of Zeus, are carrying into Rome the greatest opponent of Zeus in the Roman Empire. 
I think that's what he's trying to show us, that here comes Paul, and Zeus's sons are going to bring him there. Verse 12, putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And I actually looked up how to say that, so maybe that's how you say it. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Petuli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And so we came to Rome. That is not a geographical statement. What that is, it's a statement of victory. We have arrived. All that Jesus said would happen, we got to Rome. Now, geographically, again, they have not arrived at Rome. Petula here is about a hundred miles from Rome, but it's their centralized grain terminal that all the ships would go into and drop off their grain. So that's where they've gotten to. Verse 15, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far from the Zephorum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. Christians come a long way to meet Paul and encourage him. Appius is about 44 miles from Rome. That's a long way in that in those days. Three Towers is 33 miles from Rome. And they escort Paul that 100 miles all the way into the city. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and Turk took courage. Now, why does Paul thank God and take courage here? Well, what you have to understand is Paul's never been to Rome. Paul has never met these people. What Paul did is a few years, you know, before when, when he's probably in jail, he wrote this letter to the Roman church. And he sends a lady named Phoebe to go read these words and answer questions and talk to all these people. And all of a sudden, people start believing. And they start following Jesus. And Paul shows up and all these people show up. And it's like, wow, the work that God is doing through me is having a lot of fruit. And that brings a lot of encouragement to him. Verse 16, And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Everything that Paul had been going through in his life has brought him to this moment. He's going to go and stand before Caesar's court or Caesar himself. The encouragement here is that there are believers in Rome and they show up to love him and say, God is doing a work in your life, even if you think maybe sometimes it's worthless because you, you know, get bit by a snake and you're stuck in the open sea and you've been in jail for the last three and a half years. Things are happening. What you also have to understand is this great encouragement that Paul is getting is also going to the soldiers and the sailors and maybe even some of those prisoners because when they stayed for seven days with these people, in order for Paul to stay there, the guards had to stay with them. So these Christians put up everybody. They brought in everybody into their homes, took care of them for seven days. And I think that the soldiers and the sailors and the prisoners are like, this is the craziest thing I have ever seen. The way these Christians love one another, the way they're loving me. I think it's just an amazing act of encouragement for people who may not even have trusted or known Jesus at that moment. In Acts 23 verse 11, Jesus says to Paul, Take courage, that is, be encouraged. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. It goes all the way back to Jesus' words at the very beginning of the book of Acts, when he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And now Paul is in Rome, that is the end of the earth. And when Jesus says to Paul, take courage, this is the word for joy. You need to find joy in what you are going through, this hardship, because Paul's going to sit in jail for another three and a half years after that. And when we are called to encourage one another, it means to edify. It means we build up. We repair someone around us. Are there people in your life right now that you need to edify them? You need to repair them, build them back up. What you see going through, what all that was endured in Acts and the encouragement that comes along, 
It's so much more than complimenting someone on their haircut. Because by all intents and purposes, Paul most likely didn't have any hair, so you couldn't you know, compliment him on his haircut. It's not telling people how great their homemade cookies taste. It's that over and over we are encouraging one another of what God is doing in our lives and calling them back to understand his goodness over us. We are lifting one another's hearts back up. We're repairing, we're rebuilding, and sending people back towards Jesus. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul's going to send one of his friends to that church to point out the evidences of God working in that place, many things that they probably did not even see in their own lives. True encouragement, what it's going to do is repair and build up and bring joy and point a person back to God's promises that assures them that all that we ever face is under the control of our great and our good God. In the early church, this type of encouragement, it was just normal. It's part of church life together. It's how they live together. Let me show you what this looks like. Acts 14.22, you see the encouragement there. And they shared scripture, saturated words with each other that spur one another on in faith. Romans 15 verse 4, the encouragement brought hope. Romans 15.5 and Colossians 2, the encouragement brought unity among the people. Acts 15.31, it brought joy. Acts 15.32, it brings strength. 1 Thessalonians 2. 2.12, the encouragement, it brings faithfulness. Hebrews 10.24 and 25, the encouragement brings about fruitfulness and perseverance. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, it brings about the certainty of Christ's return that our God has not left us. He is coming again. And in the New Testament, encouragement is a command for us as those who follow Christ. As His hands and feet in the world, we are to encourage one another in everyday life. I think, you know, it's like any other skill. You'll get better at it if you practice at it. It's, it sometimes it's not easy to do. I get that. But the more we do it, the better we're going to get. I was reading this article by Jared Musgrove, and he gave five points, short points, trust me, short points, to better learn to encourage one another. And I want to give you these right now to help you see a little bit how to do this. Okay, number one is this. He says, first off, we need to turn to the Scriptures. Not everyone is comfortable finding the perfect words in every situation. I get it. Sometimes the fewer words of our own can even be more helpful. When you see someone who needs encouragement, think of things in the Bible that you could speak into someone's life. Not trite little verses, but let the scriptures be our starting point to encourage those around us. Point out to others how you see God growing them. Second thing is be specific. Be specific. Encouragement is most meaningful when it's specific to somebody's life. So be observant of those in your community. Is someone quick to volunteer? Is someone quick to give their time to others? Is someone uh, able to practice self-control in their words? Is somebody patient? Offer concrete examples of how you have seen them live out their faith. It is deeply encouraging to hear, I saw God's grace at work when you did this or when you said that. So turn to the scriptures, be specific. Third thing, be intentional. Give thought to who could use encouragement. I would say sooner rather than later. Like, I have been terrible about this in the past. You can ask the staff around here when sometimes God gets something like, okay, I'm going to be really encouraging. And I start to do it and people say, what's wrong with you? Who, who, who are you? Where'd you come from? Because I'm not always the best at it. Uh, one of our elders, Mike Harmon, had no idea how I felt about him and his ministry at Element. And last year we're having this conversation and he tells me that he felt almost useless, which just blew me away because everyone I talked to says how pastoral Mike Harmon is and how he's walked through them with different places in their lives and drawn them back to Christ. And apparently, we are all telling one another this and never telling him. So apparently, we need to tell the person. 
If you're in a gospel community, look around, choose somebody, maybe week to week, and think about them and pray for them during the week. When you come together, say something encouraging to that person. Again, maybe how they're being used by God. You could also do this in your workplace or in your family or in your neighborhood. You can minister to others by being intentional. Next thing is, fourth thing, is be selfless. Sometimes we hold ourselves back. We're so worried about what someone might think or someone might say if we encourage the the wrong way or whatever. Sometimes you have rivals at your work and you really don't want to give them a big head. Have you ever withheld encouragement from somebody else because you were worried about how they would take it or how they would think about it? Well, we can't do that. See, encouragement and flattery are not the same thing. They sit on opposite ends of the spectrum. Don't let fear cause you to curtail your genuine words of encouragement for one another. We must not let our insecurities stop us from our praise of others. Uh, Musgrove wrote this, We can either harm by the selfishness of our silence or diminish praise, or we can heal by the selflessness of our fruitful words driven by the Scriptures. So, turn to the Scriptures, be specific, be intentional, be selfless, and fifthly, be courageous. Be courageous. Say the words that need to be said. And this means we encourage, yes, for the godly things people are doing, but we also encourage the pursuit of godly things not being done. If you have a a friend who is pessimistic all the time, or maybe they gossip a lot, use godly words to encourage them towards Christ-honoring speech and a Christ-honoring life. Be gracious rather than legalistic. I think the more we can identify with each other's battle, the more loving our encouragement can ultimately become. And in the end, encouragement, I think, should take place in any list of spiritual disciplines that people go through. When we encourage someone, we have the opportunity to speak healing truth into their life. Because we have to understand, uh, a spiritual giant like Paul writes most of the New Testament, he needed it. And so do we. And I think the only way we're really going to step into that truly is remembering the greatest encouraging thing that we have ever seen or understood, and that is the gospel itself. That God has come to us. He has loved us. He has drawn us to himself. Yes, we were so undeserving, but he chose to love us. Encouragement is what will build us all up to truly live out being the church in the world as he calls us to. Now, in your notes, uh, I did put those five points of that little article for Jared Musgrove. And I want to give you kind of marching orders this week. I want to encourage you (laughs) to encourage one another this week. Be a people who start to look around and see these things and implement these things and encourage one another. Because in the middle of COVID right now, we all need it. We encourage each other to be full of hope. And that comes from God's great rescue of us. And we need to understand that in the midst of what we're going through right now, everybody needs a bit of encouragement. I got to tell you, I'm, I'm feeling it today. Someone sent me an article from the state of California today. And I'm like, ah, I need some encouragement because I'm very irritated today. And we come alongside one another, and we, and we don't need to focus so much on these little things, but focus back upon who Christ is, and make that de- determination of how we begin to live our life, of how we trust Him in all that we do. It is so easy to get our eyes onto ourselves, to stop encouraging one another, and to get so myopic that we just start to look in at our own lives. And God sends us into each other's lives to pull us out of that myopic stance to look beyond us to the world around us to see who He is and what He is calling us to so we will truly be His people in the world. 
And I tell you that every week at Element, we try and get you guys to understand the depth of this in this thing that we call communion. And again, I know that we're not here together, but you're at home. And if you want to, you could take communion. You could grab a cracker, a piece of bread, and some grape juice or wine as a reminder of Christ's body that was broken for us and His blood that was shed for us. And that reminds us of what God did to rescue us. The greatest encouragement in the world is God didn't leave us to ourselves or our own devices. God came to rescue us and draw us back to himself. And that's what we remember in this thing that we call communion. If you need prayer, I would encourage you to send a prayer request to prayer.element.org, connect.element.org, and we will get that. And we will make sure, if you want someone to pray with you, we'll get a hold of you. Or if you just want to tell us the prayer request, we're more than happy to send that out to various people at Element so we can be praying for you. Because I know in these times, it is very, very difficult to be a people who center in, in God's love and encourage one another because so often it's so easy to turn inward. And God is calling us to see what He has done and how He sends us out to those around us. If you would like uh, to give, we give again because God just gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship of who He is. And I would encourage you that you, know, you can give online. You can, you can mail giving to us. We're still looking for ways to help those around us and reaching out as well. But I would also encourage you this week to spend some time with some other people and ask some questions about encouragement. Ask people that they see you as an encourager or not. And maybe what's the better way that you can begin to encourage one another that is our, around you? so that we can be a people who reflect God's goodness and God's grace and God's holiness. And that we could be a people who come alongside one another and love one another as He has first loved us. Let's be an encouraging people. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we ask that You would take us and have us first and foremost understand Your great rescue of us as a people that we would understand what you have done to bring us back to yourself and that we'd be encouraged because there's nothing deserving in ourselves. But you came and made us worthy by your own choice. And so I ask that you would take us and teach us to remember what you have done to rescue us. Then we begin to live that out in our lives. We would take that great encouragement that we have received and begin to encourage one another that we would honor you by the things that we say and the things that we do in one another's lives, that we would truly be the church, that we wouldn't be just solitary individuals who believe in Jesus, but we would be a church, a body of people coming together, strengthening each other, living for your name in this world who so desperately needs hope and grace. So teach us to be a people of hope and grace, honoring you wherever we find ourselves knowing that you are near in everything that we go through. And we ask that you would take and teach us to truly be your people. We ask these things in your son's good name. Amen.